And that's why I wanted somebody else to read it. So that as much as I love the word, uh, I'm probably ready for a nap by the time I got done there uh, reading that. So Michael was willing and I appreciate it. I love this passage of scripture because the night that I gave my life to vocational ministry that I said, God, this is what I'll do. I I don't want to do anything else. Uh, I think it's what you want me to do. Uh, I heard this passage preached. It was this text from Acts 6 through 8. Um, We're going to be looking at half of chapter 6 this morning and we'll be looking at most of chapter 7 this morning. Psalm 93.4 says, Mightier than the thunders of many waters, mightier than the waves of the sea, the Lord on high is mighty. He rules over the waves of the sea. And when waves crash upon the shore, the water brings dissolved minerals in the sand of the ocean back to the sand of the beach. And with each crashing wave, more and more sediment is brought to the shore. And in the right situation, it is deposited in a place where over months and years it hardens. It compacts, it cements, and then the sediment turns to rock, sandstone. This process, water to sand, wave after wave, more and more sediment, the compacting, the cementing, is called lithification. Maybe a new word for you this morning, it was a new word for me this week. It is the complex process whereby freshly deposited loose grains of sediment are converted into rock. This morning we pick up where we left off in Acts. We have Stephen, one of the seven men selected to solve the issue of the unfed widows. And he is up against opposition. He is staring down the barrel of persecution, the prospect of dying for the kingdom, following his Lord in faithfulness to the end. And what Stephen battles in this text this morning is a result of spiritual lithification. The result of waves of sin washing over the heart. The result of waves of obstinate rebellion rising up and crashing down in a person's wellspring. What Stephen faced and what we're talking about is spiritual hard-heartedness. Hard-heartedness toward God. Hard-heartedness toward the one who is mightier than the thunders of many waters. Hard-heartedness toward the one who is mightier than the waves of the sea. A hard heart toward the Lord on high. And really, there is nothing more dangerous than this. The hardness of heart toward the living God. And so, we need to listen well this morning, uh, not just with ears. But since we're talking about spiritual hard-heartedness, we must listen with the heart. Because I want you to understand this morning that God is merciful. Even if you are in the process of being spiritually lithified today, your heart has been growing hard toward God coming into today. I want to say to you, today is the day of repentance. Draw near to God, He will draw near to you. Let's pray. Lord, I think of the hymn that says, A glory gilds the sacred page, majestic like the sun. It gives light to every age. It gives but borrows none. And that is your word. Light to every age, but it doesn't need to borrow from anywhere to give it. What a rich word you have spoken to us in your revelation, God. Your revelation of yourself. You want us to know you. So bless your word this morning and the preaching of it. Bless your servant 
as I preach it. Bless your sheep as they hear it, and bless your Son, who deserves all glory, all praise, all honor, and all dominion. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. The text has been read, we won't reread it, but I want us to remember the rhythm that we've seen in Acts. Acts 4, opposition from the outside. Stop preaching in this name. Acts 5, opposition is uh, coming from the inside, with Ananias and Sapphira lying to the church about money. Beginning of Acts, uh, or end of Acts 5, opposition from the outside again, once again they're being told, don't preach in that name. Beginning of Acts 6 last week, potential division from within over the situation with the unfed widows. And now as we uh, enter into the last half of Acts 6, when we go into chapter 7, you have opposition from the outside again in the most extreme of measures. Because the most extreme thing that the world can do to you as a Christian is to kill you. That's the reality. That's the full measure of wrath that the world can inflict upon you as a believer. They can't touch your soul. They can't touch your salvation. The palm of Jesus is your home. But the full measure, the murder of the body, that's what we're going to see happen to our brother Stephen. That's not until a couple weeks from now, Lord willing, but today we see how we got there. And I want to break this text up into three sections. We will see the opposition in chapter 6, verses 8 through 15. We will see the speech in the 50 verses that start chapter 7. And then in those few verses, 51 through 54, the charges that Stephen lays at the feet of these men. We'll see how Stephen's opponents got to where they are, opposing the will of God and the way of God. And in each section of the text, we can point to the cementing and the compacting of their hearts. Let's start by looking at the opposition. Stephen is a man full of grace and power. We learn that right off the bat. It's another way to say that Stephen is a man who is filled with the Spirit of God. The grace of God has changed Stephen's life. That's the only way somebody can be full of grace. Grace is the unmerited favor of God. Unless God does a work of grace in you, you will not be full of grace. And Stephen is ministering in power because the same spirit who brought power to the work of the apostles is bringing power to the witness of this deacon. The spirit of God has made Stephen his dwelling place because Stephen is a child of God by grace through faith. And the spirit is operating in Stephen powerfully. You remember Stephen stood out in verse 5, even among the other men as being full of faith. So as a man full of faith, as a man full of grace, he is ministering in power because he's also filled with the Spirit. Signs and wonders are being done in the same manner as the apostles and Jesus before them. This is a marker for us from Luke the historian. He's letting us know Stephen is a faithful brother. He follows in the footsteps of his elder brothers, the apostles, and he follows in the footsteps of his master, King Jesus. But in the same way that he does signs and wonders in the pattern of the apostles and does signs and wonders in the pattern of Christ, he will experience the same opposition as the apostles, the same opposition of Christ. And this is so often what happens in our lives and in the church. Godliness brings opposition. That's not to say that all opposition in your life is because you are just the most godly person ever. Sometimes you have opposition in your life because you are not godly. But certainly, where we see hearts after God, you will find the world looking to tear apart those hearts. 
The opposition from within at the beginning of the chapter had to do with Hellenistic widows. Jewish widows who spoke Greek. Now the opposition from the outside in the back half of chapter 6 is coming from Hellenistic Jewish men. Members of the synagogue of the freedmen. These were Jews who were slaves and got their freedom back. Cyrenians and Alexandrians, which would be Jewish people from North Africa. Cilicia and Asia refer to Jewish people in modern-day Turkey. And so Jewish people were scattered into areas like these, regions like these, during the times of exile. And it is Jewish men from these areas who are disputing with Stephen, but you can see in chapter 10, they cannot withstand the wisdom of God. They cannot withstand the Spirit of God who is speaking powerfully through Stephen. The wisdom would refer to the Word of God. Stephen is making arguments from a place of reverent faith, recognizing God's word to be sufficient. He's not arguing out of his own opinion. He is arguing with the word of God. If he had relied on himself, he would have wilted. But he seems to leave his flesh at home here and rely on God's wisdom as he contends with them. So they conspire against Stephen in the same way that Jesus was conspired against. They get men to issue these false accusations saying that Stephen is anti-law and Stephen is anti-temple. That's also what they're referring to in verse 11 when they say he's blaspheming Moses and God. To blaspheme Moses is to be anti-law for it was called the law of Moses. To blaspheme the temple is to be anti-God because that's the place where the Lord dwells. And these are serious accusations. If Stephen is found guilty of being blasphemous of God, well, he is going to die. Leviticus 24, verse 16, Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him. The sojourner as well as the native, when he blasphemes the name, shall be put to death. Much like the apostles... Much like Jesus, we have Stephen brought before this council of elders, this council of scribes. False witnesses are set up against him, saying he's anti-law, he's anti-temple, confirming the accusations that have been made. They're twisting Stephen's words up regarding the temple and the law to make it seem like he's some radical revolutionary, trying to destroy the divine oracles of God, teaching new things. But in reality, they are the ones opposing God's oracles. They're the ones opposing God's prophecies and God's word and God's work. Stephen's just explaining to them the reality of the situation. So if you're taking notes this morning, number one, sin is compacted and cemented in the heart when God's word and God's work are opposed. Sin is compacted and cemented when God's word and God's work are opposed. Just as the waves bring sediments and deposit them on the shore, When people hear God's word proclaimed and they see God's work at hand and they attribute this to evil, they are hardening themselves to God. Listen to what Jesus is accused of in Mark 14, 58. We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Again, a few verses later. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard this blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. Why is Stephen being accused of the same things that Jesus is? Because he's teaching the same things that Jesus is. The apostles, they came to Stephen. They said, young man, we're going to teach you everything that Christ commanded us. 
And now Stephen is obedient. He's going and he's teaching others everything Christ commanded. He's out fishing for men. Right? He's reacting to the apostles the same way the apostles reacted to Christ. He's saying, we got to go, we got to tell. And these men, they are hardening their hearts towards Stephen's message in the same way that the Pharisees and the Sadducees hardened their hearts toward the message of Christ. They're hardening their hearts toward God's word, they're rejecting God's word, they're twisting God's word, and then they are turning God's word on Stephen like a weapon. It's the same thing they did to Jesus. You've seen this before in your life. You share the good news of God's love with somebody and they go, yeah, well, the Bible says blank. And they twist up some scripture or some point of theology and they throw it back in your face. And what that is is another wave of rebellion washing over that person's heart. It's another wave of sin. It's another sediment of hatred and rebellion toward God and his principles. The hardness is deepening. The sediment of haughtiness towards God and his throne, it's deepening. A little more sludgy sand settling in, being pressed down. They're hearing the truth and they are saying, no. I reject God's revelation of himself. I reject God's word. And that is a dangerous game to play. For what was sand and minerals carried along in the waves becomes rock on the shore. No one should take lightly the hearing of God's word, including today. You can never know what your rejection of the word of God is doing to your own heart. Jeremiah said the heart is desperately sick. Who can understand it? It's desperately wicked. Who, who, can, even, who can exegete the human heart? Who could take it and say, Let, let's get all this evil out and let's figure out just how bad the human heart is. Jeremiah says, you can't do it. You can't do it. And so to sit here and say, I'll reject God's word today and I'll follow him next year when I'm ready. When I'm done sowing my wild oats or living however I want to live. When we say that, you have no idea what your rejection of his word is doing in your heart. You have no idea. You never know how willful rebellion could be searing the conscience. That's how Paul spoke of a hardened heart. He spoke of it as a seared conscience. He tells Timothy in the last days, in the days in between Jesus' ascension and Jesus' returning... That there are going to be these people who depart the faith because they devote themselves to false teachers. And he says those false teachers have seared consciences. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons. By the way, any anti-God teaching, that's where it's coming from. So if you know somebody like, I'm kind of into Hinduism and I pray to, you know, Brahman and I feel this and I feel that, what they're feeling and what they're experiencing is evil. It's dangerous stuff. Got no other way to explain that in our Christian worldview than to say it's deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons. And they learn these things through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. It's burnt up. It's like a candle with no wick left to ignite. The conscience has been given over to a debased mind. It's a part of God's judgment. Romans 1, Paul describes this. When people trade in creation, and, or trade in creator, and they start worshiping creation, it will ultimately devolve into God giving them over to the sinfulness of their own hearts to the point that they dishonor their bodies and refuse to repent. Romans 1, 
and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. These verses should motivate us to repent, Christians and non-Christians alike. We should hear this and we should be alarmed at the prospect of a hardened heart. We should be alarmed at the prospect of spiritual lithification taking place in our lives. If you look at verse 15, the council sees the face of the one they accuse looks like that of an angel. Stephen's peaceful. Stephen's worshipful. As he is about to speak, the favor of God is visibly upon him. He's like Moses, the one that he's accused of opposing after Moses meets with God to receive the law. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. And you wonder if the council maybe felt a bit of fear when they saw Stephen's glowing resolve here. And so, let's look at how Stephen responds. He doesn't stand up and directly defend himself. He doesn't defend his character. He doesn't point to signs and wonders that God did through him. He really doesn't even answer their question. They say, are these things so? And he goes, let me give you a little speech here, a lesson. And he takes the posture of a teacher. Now, I, I want to, if, if you're like, why are we doing all 50 verses in one Sunday? Let's break the speech down. Let's spend some time swimming in this thing. I don't think we're meant to. When I was 15 years old, I went to England with the Powhatan High School marching band. And on the way home, we flew over Greenland. I had to look that up this week to make sure that actually happened. In my mind, I remember that happening. And I was like, do you fly over Greenland when you come home from England? Yes, you do. And I remember me and all the other teenagers looking out the window and going, well, that's not very green when we look down at Greenland. I didn't see any polar bears, though. I didn't see any Arctic hares or reindeer or narwhals or any of the other things that lived down there. I didn't go to Nuke and eat the food downtown. And I did not go see Viking ruins. I was 30,000 feet in the sky. It was a flyover. It wasn't a five-day vacation. And Stephen's speech is a flyover. It's not meant to be a five-day vacation. It's not meant to be a sermon series. Like, if you want to take one, there's enough content for you to hang out, but it's not the purpose. It's one long speech taking us from Abraham to Jesus in fairly quick fashion, showing the council how he is actually pro-law, he's actually pro-temple, and that they are actually the ones who are committing blasphemy against God. And in the speech, we essentially go from Abraham to the 12 sons, the 12 sons to Moses, Moses to the temple, the temple to Jesus, the righteous one. So we're going to do the flyover this morning. We're not going to get down low. We're not going to the Viking ruins. We start with Abraham. God chose Abraham. Abraham didn't know God any more than I know of like a random rock that exists on Mars this morning. Understand that. Abraham was born in modern day Iraq, probably raised to worship a moon god named Nana, and he was probably praying to the moon itself for blessings. And then God spoke to him. God said, this one, this one, in the land of the Chaldeans, And he called him. The glory of God appeared to him, we see in verse 2. Called him to leave his land, leave his inheritance that he had there. To leave his father's gods and to go to Canaan. 
And Abraham believed God's promise and he went. And even though he had no claim on an inch of property in the place that God was calling him to, he believed God and he went. This is what you see in verse 5. Moreover, God said, you're going to have offspring. But he had no heir. And yet he believed God. Abraham, I'm going to give you a land. Go to this place where nothing belongs to you. Yes, God. I will give you an offspring even though you have no child. Yes, God. But you also see that God spoke to Abraham and told him that his offspring would be enslaved in a foreign land for 400 years. In verse 6, that God would judge the nation that enslaved his people. And so Israel's narrative begins like this. God is making promises, but his people must respond in faith. Abraham's people will have a land, but for 400 years, they're not going to be in it. They're going to have to trust him. Abraham will have a people, but he has no children. So from the very beginning, with the father of Israel, God must be trusted. He must be believed. And the section on Abraham ends with a little monument from Stephen. He likes to build these throughout the speech. In verse 8, he mentions Abraham's sons, Isaac and Jacob. He mentions the covenant of circumcision. He mentions the 12 sons who are the patriarchs of the 12 tribes. You say, what's the point? The point is, before the temple was even built and before the law of Moses was given, God was keeping his promises to those who believe him and do not reject his word. That's Stephen's point there. Keeps going in uh, verses 9 through 16. You get the story of how the Israelites end up in Egypt. Joseph is sold into slavery by the patriarchs. And yet God uses Joseph, gives him favor. He rises up from slave to magistrate in Egypt. He's ruling. And the circumstances of famine bring his family to Egypt. Egypt becomes this place of rescue, this place of refuge for Israel. But is there a temple there? Nope. Is there refuge and rescue? Absolutely. But there's no temple. Did they have the law of Moses yet? Nope, not yet. And yet God was with, was with Joseph. God was sustaining his people. Egypt is mentioned six different times in verses 9 through 16 to emphasize they're not home. They're not in Israel. They don't have the plot of land God promised. And there's only 75 of them going in as beggars to this powerful nation. The emphasis is not on the greatness of Israel here. It is on the greatness of God as a promise keeper. Before the temple, before the law. In verse 16, there's another little monument that Stephen builds. Dark times in Egypt, right? We know what's going to happen during Israel's time there. But even still, Stephen makes mention of the patriarchal tomb in Shechem. A reminder that the bones of the patriarchs will not rest in Egypt because the people of God don't belong there. God is faithful to his children. He's a promise keeper and he will not leave them in chains and he will not leave them without a home. We learn in verses 17 through 19 how Israel became a nation. What was 75 grew, it multiplied. By the time you get to the tabernacle in the wilderness, they're freed from slavery and there are 600,000 men, just the men. But of course, before there is a story of redemption, it's a story of oppression. Because the next king over Egypt didn't care about Joseph and didn't care about anybody in his family. He looked at Joseph's people and said, this is a labor force. And he was so brutal, he started to kill off the male population by having Israelite baby boys murdered. And this brings us to Moses. 
Moses gets the most time from Stephen probably because he's been accused of being anti-Moses and anti-law. And probably because the council's misunderstanding of the law is much of the reason why they're rejecting God's grace. So Stephen's going right at it. He breaks up the life of Moses into three parts. The first 40 years, the middle 40 years, and the final 40 years. His first 40 years is covered in just a few verses. He's born. He's adopted by Pharaoh's daughter in verse 21. He gets brought up under the top Egyptian education in verse 22. The second 40 years gets covered in 23 through 29. He visits his Israelite brothers. He sees the one being wronged and avenges him. Tries to deliver the man. He thought they would understand this, but they did not. Because when he tries to play mediator the next day between two arguing Jewish men, they reject him. And this is the pattern of Moses' life. While he acts as a deliverer and a mediator for these two men, he's being rejected. And that's the way it's going to go. As Moses tries to be a mediator and a deliverer for Israel, again and again he's rejected by Israel. He's driven into Midian here, which concludes the second period of his life. And then you have the final 40 years, in many ways the most significant 40 years, right? Certainly uh, the most time given in the the Charlton Heston film, right? So it's, it's the time you're most familiar with. And that's what you get from verses 29 through 40. This is the time in which he speaks with God in the burning bush. And God calls him to be a ruler and a redeemer for the people. You remember when they asked, who made you a ruler and a judge? God did. God raised him up. When they grumbled against Moses, they grumbled against God. He led them out of Egypt performing signs and wonders. Much like Jesus Much like the apostles, much like Stephen. And he was so great in the historic records of Israel's memory that they cherished God's prophecy to raise up another prophet like Moses. And they believed that prophet, that capital P prophet, would be the Messiah. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Another one like Moses will come. Moses received the law in the wilderness to give it to God's people. You see that in verse 38. But how did the people respond? With rebellion. Verses 39 through 41 describe the disgusting, idolatrous scene as Moses comes down from receiving the law to find his people full-on engaged in idolatrous worship, bowing down before a golden calf that they have made. They're making sacrifices and everything. They reject the leadership of Moses. And much, much more tragic than that for their hearts, they reject the law of God. And you see that in verse 42. Stephen says, God turned away and gave them over to the worship of heaven. It's another way to say that God let them worship creation and feel the devastating effects of it. And then he quotes from Amos. Interesting move. Not Moses. I think there's places he could have quoted from. He could have pulled from Moses. But Stephen makes a choice. No, I'll pull from Amos. He doesn't tell about God's severe punishment of Israel in the generation where they grumbled against Moses and rejected Moses and rejected the law. He pulls from a prophet who is speaking about the time of the Babylonian exile. Why? Because Stephen wants these men to see the golden calf was just the start. From the second Israel got the law, they could not stop transgressing it. 
Israel's history from Moses to Malachi is one long tale of disobedience and then repentance and then disobedience. And along the way, from the days of the prophet Moses to the days of the prophet Amos, Israel rejects the word of God and the law of God. And then he brings it home by moving from Moses to the time of King David and then King Solomon and the building of the temple. He's now addressing the other half of the accusation. He shows how the tabernacle is not evil, the temple is not evil. To the contrary, they're directed by God. They're instructed by God. The tent of witness, we see in verse 44, is made according to the pattern Moses had been shown. And the fathers of Israel moved it until the generation of David. This is how God chose to dwell with his people in the tabernacle. But God found favor, or or David found favor with God as a man who's after his own heart. And he says, God, I want to build you a house. It wasn't David who ends up doing that. Instead, it is his son Solomon who does it. You see that in verses 46 through 47. So just as there was nothing wrong with the tabernacle, there's nothing wrong with the temple. God authorized its building. The problem is the, the, the council's false understanding of the temple. They thought that God was contained in it. They thought this is the only place the presence of God can be found. But Stephen's already shown how silly that is. For Abraham was not called in the temple that wasn't even built yet. He was called in the land of the Chaldeans, the Babylonians. And God was with his people in Egypt. And God was with Moses at the burning bush. So much so, it was holy ground. He is not contained in a building. Stephen quotes the prophets again, Isaiah this time. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. I love that text because what it shows us is is. As, as, as big as God is, the place that he most longs to dwell is in the heart of someone who is humble and contrite and trembles at his word. Isn't that glorious? It's not even part of the sermon. You might be going, nice speech, what's the point? Nice history lesson. What does it have to do with Stephen being anti-law and anti-temple? Stephen being on trial for blasphemy. Well, everything. Everything, because Stephen's lesson here has exposed the way that these men have rejected God's law and God's prophet and God's presence. Number two, sin is compacted and cemented in the heart when God's law and God's worship are rejected. This kangaroo court has accused Stephen of being anti-law and being anti-Moses, but he has shown that truly they are anti-law, they are anti-Moses. For this is a crowd that believed they could provide a righteousness for themselves from the law. They thought, we'll obey this thing and God will accept us. And worse, they felt they were obeying it. They felt they were so righteous through their ability to keep the law. And then they looked down their nose at anybody who couldn't play the game of morality as well as them. But they misunderstood the law's purpose. If the law could make you righteous, then why did the Israelites commit idolatry like literally upon its delivery? If the law could make you righteous, wouldn't they be worshiping Yahweh at the bottom of the mountain and not the golden calf? 
if it can make you righteous, how come Israel then continued having the law to reject God well into the days of the prophet Amos, as Stephen has pointed out in quoting him? And if it can make you righteous, then how in the world was Abraham counted as righteous without it? This is what I mean, Paul says, the law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Meaning, the inheritance of God comes to his children by faith, not works of the law. And it's always been this way. It comes to us by a promise, not a performance. See, the real purpose of the law is not to make you righteous. The law is good, don't get me wrong, the law is beautiful. The law is wonderful. But the law exposes the lack of beauty and wonder that you have. The law exposes how unrighteous you are. It's a schoolmaster, it's a guardian, it's a tutor that exposes our sin and then leads us to Christ, the one who atones for it. Paul says in Galatians 3, so then the law was our guardian or our teacher or our schoolmaster until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. The law exposes our unrighteousness, and then it drives us to run to God for help and to rescue. It exposes our sin. It drives us to come to God, cry out for help, and that help comes to us in the person of Jesus Christ. And so we must believe the promise of God in Christ, just as Abraham believed. And in doing that, apart from the law, our faith is credited to us as righteousness, We are justified by God when we trust in Christ. We have good legal standing with him in his courtroom. The law can't give you that. It pushes you to the one who can. So who's anti-law here? Is it the guy preaching Christ, the one the law points to, or is it the guys twisting it, trying to derive righteousness from it? Obviously, it's them. And so Stephen took their own accusation, and with this history lesson, he turned it against them, and he has indicted them. It's very similar with the temple. The temple's good, but the temple is not an end in and of itself. The council took God, they made him small. And they say, we're going to shrink him down, and he lives in this house over here. And then they took the temple, and they blew it up, and they said, this place is the center of all worship. And that's idolatry. When you diminish God, and you take something created, and you blow it up and start bowing down to it, that's idolatry. They made the temple the main thing. And Stephen is showing them the temple was never supposed to be the main thing. It's pointing beyond itself to Jesus Christ. If they don't see that, they are anti-temple. Because they're missing the purpose of the temple. If you miss the purpose of the temple, which is leading you to Jesus, well then you're anti-temple. You reject the temple's true purpose. For in the tabernacle and in the temple, God came and graciously dealt and dwelt with his children. Well, in Christ, God has come to us in a person, and he has dealt and dwelt with his children. And when he returns, he will dwell with us forever, as the promise to Abraham is finally fulfilled, and God's children live on the new earth under King Jesus, the fullness of God's people and the fullness of God's presence. And the temple is pointing to that. It begs us, make Jesus the center of worship. 
And so when these men stop short and they count the temple itself as the object of worship, they completely miss the point and in the process are rejecting the worship of God, rejecting the Son of God, and rejecting the temple itself who is pointing to the Son of God. So what was an accusation against Stephen, once again, is now an indictment against these men. The history lesson is exposing the rockiness of their hearts. He's showing them how years and years of rejecting the law and rejecting worship has formed layers of hard sediment in the hearts of these men. He's showing them how you can be so familiar with God's truth and you can be around God's truth but still end up far from God both in righteousness and reverence. And now it's time to formally introduce his charges against them as we close up. He's made his case, and he looks at him and he says, you're anti-law, you're anti-temple, you're stiff-necked, you're uncircumcised in your hearts and ears, you're always resistant to the Holy Spirit, you received the law and you did not keep it. In other words, you're Israel, but you're not Israel. You got Jewish blood, but you have no Jewish faith, because you rejected the Jewish Messiah, the righteous one, Jesus Christ. And it should be no surprise because your fathers rejected every single prophet before him as well. You're like, does Stephen have a death wish? He knows what it is. He knows what's about to happen. And he's going to say everything that God laid on his heart before they cut his throat. And I love him for it. This charge of being stiff-necked and being uncircumcised, it is a New Testament charge with Old Testament words. Exodus 33, go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. Circumcision was a sign of the covenant God had made with Abraham. To say that somebody was uncircumcised in the heart is to say they have dead skin around their heart. They're cut off from God spiritually. They're outside of his covenant. You might bear the physical mark of Abraham's circumcision, but their hearts look nothing like Father Abraham's. And in resisting the spirit and the law that leads them to Christ, they're dismissing the way into salvation. So final point, number three, sin is compacted and cemented in the heart when God's way of salvation is dismissed. God's word is clear on who needs to break through the deadness of your heart. Who who we need to break through the deadness of our hearts. It's the very spirit that they resist. For the new covenant promise is that the Spirit of God will bring life to the heart, and the heart will not be hard and rocky, but soft and alive to the Lord. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, and from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes, and be careful to obey my rules. The New Testament confirms that this is what the Spirit of God does in God's reborn children in Titus 3, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, not according to works of the law, but according to his own mercy. By the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. 
When Jesus talks to Nicodemus in John 3, he tells him, a man must be born again. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. And he tells him, unless you're born of the Spirit, Nicodemus, you will not enter into the kingdom of God. If you're dismissive of the law that leads us to Christ, you won't see your need for rebirth. And if you're rejecting God's Spirit, you will not be reborn. For the way of salvation is to have your sin exposed by God's law to turn to Christ in repentance and to believe on his saving work for salvation and to be reborn and have the Spirit of God make you alive, regenerate your heart, dwell in you as the temple of the living God. This is the good news of the gospel. People argue, does regeneration come before faith or faith before regeneration? I don't care this morning. Don't care about that theological argument this morning. We can, we can have an argument about Romans 8 and the golden chain of salvation, and we can do all that some other time. But this morning, you've got to understand, if you're far from God, you need the Spirit of God to make your heart alive, and you need to believe and trust the Lord. Apart from the good news of Jesus Christ, there's no salvation, there's no hope for you. If you dismiss the way of salvation, you are dismissing the eternal hope of your soul. God is a self-revelation. He has spoken in his word and he has said, this is the only way that someone is saved. And his son said, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This is how God has revealed himself to the world. And if you reject that, you are rejecting him and the only way to be saved. And Paul says in Romans 2, don't do this. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Do you oppose God's word and God's work? Do you assume he will just keep giving you more and more days to live and to reject him? Do you think that in the end nothing will happen? You'll die, you'll be eaten by worms. Do you reject God's law? Do you reject God's worship? Do you think there's no repercussion for this in the here and now so you're getting away with it? Do you dismiss the way into salvation? Do you think this has no impact on your heart? Friend, listen to what Paul says in Romans 2. He's telling us that while God is showing you kindness to lead you to repentance, with each rejection of that kindness, you are making your heart hard against him. You are storing up wrath for yourself. For with each hearing of the word, with each rejection of his kindness, you're just stacking up more and more rebellion. You cannot claim innocence, just like the men on this council. And so the the band will come back up right now. And I want to say to you, your heart might be hard as a rock today. Maybe the the waves of sin and rebellion and rejection have washed over it for years and years and years and you are just hardened toward God. You don't really feel anything toward his word. You don't really feel much toward his people. And you feel very little toward him. His hand will break through the rocky ground of your heart and soak it with his love if you would just stop fighting him today. He is the sun that hardens the clay, but he's also the sun that melts the ice. Turn to him today. 
The law has exposed you, it leads you to Christ, and in him you will find. All that hardness created by years of sin and shame washing up on your shore will be broken through and the white sands of eternal hope will replace it. For he gives beauty for ashes, he overcomes the hard heart, and he will adorn it for his own worship and glory.